Hey, everybody, we are so back and we are so live. And I am your main man, Mr. Brookshire, and we are on another episode of Inside Law. And today I have a very special guest, uh, old friend, uh, we'll say a young, older friend <laughs> that has been in the law game for 20 years. I mean, he's been in entertainment business. Uh, he's a great friend of mine. We've known each other for several years. And honestly, this is the first time that I'm having a chance to really pick his lawyer brain on the entertainment business, what he's accomplished, his viewpoints. And I know for certain you guys are going to enjoy this and you're going to get a treat out of this and you're going to be able to take some of this experience that he's had this these two decades of experience uh that mr williams had has had in the entertainment industry and the production industry and in the in the law industry and you're going to be able to utilize that somehow in your careers you may want to be an attorney one day entertainment you want to be a producer etc so he's going to be able to give you some nuggets of wisdom that i think are going to be very 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 helpful for you so without any further ado, I would like to bring in the house a very special guest. Uh, as I just said before, a very good friend of mine, an old friend. He is a best-selling author. He's a producer. And he's also an entertainment attorney, as I mentioned, for the last 20 years, working with some great films such as 90, 90 Days, uh, Burden, and uh, a Ski Trip. But so many things that he's going to bring that break down to you that you're going to be able to talk about, we're going to talk about and get into. So without none further ado, I'm going to bring straight into the house, Mr. Nathan Williams. Hey there. Nathan, what's going on, sir? We're going to get some claps on here at a clap track that's going to bring in some extra stuff. <laughs> so we're going to get you here. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on and uh, thank you for giving me this time, man. I know we've known each other for years, but we've never sat down and did this. So welcome to the show. Well, it is so good to be here. Um, you know, there, there, there's a small universe in the world. Uh, when they ask me to do something, I say yes right away. And you are a part of that small universe. As you said, we go back, we go back almost 15 years. Yeah, like I was your personal trainer. Like, I guess I started off as you hiring me as a model. And then, wow. you know, as, as, as fate happens, I end up personal training you. And here we are 15 years later. Because what's that, yeah. 2007, I think? Well, yeah, 2006. Six. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's been it's been some time. So I'm and, you know, it's so shocking because I've been doing interviews for a very long time. And the fact that I haven't interviewed you, I don't even know why. But now is the time. Well, and I are. really uh, you say here we are. Here we are. So let's just jump right into it, man. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Um, I know you're from Chicago. Um, you know what I'm saying? Tell us a little bit how being from Chicago and your upbringing has actually parlayed into your career now. Like, how do you relate your upbringing to where you are now? Well, you know, like most people from the South side of Chicago, I never let anyone forget that I am from the South side of Chicago. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, Chicago is such a part of who I am as a person and as an artist. I would not have wanted to grow up anywhere else. I think it gives um, the unique balance of being a big city, but feeling very much like, um, you know, a down home town. So many people, you know, when I first moved to the East Coast for law school, they would ask me where in the South I was from. And I would say Chicago, because most black people, a lot of black people um, that live in Chicago, they migrated from the South, mainly Mississippi. So yeah. we have we have a slight Southern draw, but yeah, grew up right. in Chicago. Um, you know, we were firmly middle-class, I would say maybe, you know, on the borderline or lower to middle, middle-class, depending on the time. So I didn't hmm. really want for anything, but we weren't, we definitely weren't rich. Um, right. 
So education was the cornerstone of you know what my mom and 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 my father uh, instilled in me that education was my ticket um, to creating the life that I wanted, and um, and I've always wanted, I've always dreamed of having a big life. You know, I always dreamed of doing big things. I knew from a very early age that, and I couldn't articulate it as such then, but um, that God called me to a higher calling and to do things right. for the world. Mm. Um, and so I knew education and I actually hated school. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I did, but I did extremely well because as I have grown, I mean, as it has become just who I am, um, I had to do it. And so if I was going to do it, I might as well be the best, you know. Correct. That part. But people just assumed that I love school and I was a bookworm and, and I love reading books, but I hate having to do it for school. I just recently took a just because of, you know, the pandemic, took an online course. And I thought it was like, you know, some easy online course where you know, you don't <laughs> this thing was four hours a day, every day of the week. And needless to say, it reminded me that I do not like school. <laughs> that part, right, right, right. I, I get a degree and or trying to make any money from it. So I didn't go to class all the time. So I have to say that. Interesting. So self-education is more of the education that you found as you've gotten older that is your liking versus having to get a grade for it. I am the same exact way when it comes to that. Now, I remember hearing a story uh, that you told as far as in what kind of motivated you into going into the law, the law field. And if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Deborah Martin Chase. Uh, yep. That actually was a story that you talked about reading it. And it's similar to Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, his story was very similar where he read an article uh, about the man that did Mr. Universe and how he took that and parlayed it into a, 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 a bodybuilding career. Then that went into, uh, you know, acting and, and the entertainment career and then politics. He's like, that's my role. That's my map. Explain, because it's very similar. Explain that, how that was so potent to you um, when you read that. Yeah, so um, I was, it was in between my junior and senior year of college. I came to LA uh, to do an internship, um, but it was an unpaid internship and you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I was not a lot of money, I was broke. Um, and so, um, I would literally get the big pack of chicken wings and have two chicken wings for lunch and two chicken wings uh, for dinner with some ramen noodles. That's how broke I was. Um, right. And I, time, you know, it was in my mind to be a performer and to um, use my, I have two degrees, one in theater and one in communication, to use my theater degree and, and go to Broadway and be a performer. Um, that summer changed my life because everything bad that could happen did. My car mm. got stolen. I got kicked out of my cousin's house. It, it was just, wow. it was, it was just, a, it was just a mess. Um, and that was the summer they were getting ready to release uh, Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston. And I'm a huge mm. Whitney Houston fanatic. She is my favorite entertainer by far, forever and ever and ever. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, Deborah Martin Chase was running Brown House Productions, which was Whitney's company then. And I read some kind of article by her, about her. Um, I've been for the last 20 years trying to find this article. Um, but it talked about what she did as a producer. And I was like, yeah, I think that's what I want to do. I don't want to be going on auditions. I don't want to be like, pick me, pick me. I want right. to control um, the process and, and create the things that I want to see. Um, and so... Uh, 
And in the article, she talked about law school and how law school helped her be, become a producer and it segued her into being a producer. And so I made up my mind after reading that, I was like, I'm going to go to law school and be a producer. And, and that's what I did. And Deborah Martin Chase is my all-time idol. Um, fast forward years later, I ended up doing a project. I know Deborah very well now. Oh, dope, dope. Yeah, I ended up doing a project that never kind of took off. But it was like, at one point, I just had to sit, sit across from her and say, you know you're the reason why I'm here. But wow. you know, you, you have to skate those because you don't want to be, make people feel old and right. all that. Um, but she right. was so gracious. And you know, she's she's just, she is elegance in motion. I tell you, she's right. elegant in motion. So that's what led me to law school, which led me to, you know, but I really went to law school to be a, a, a film and television producer. So, okay. So just let's, let's take a sidebar in that capacity. How does someone, is that a map or is that a roadmap for someone that is looking to get into producing to become an attorney? Is that an easier way in? I give the example, some people decide that they'll adapt a book into uh, a film and that's an easier way possibly to be able to get yourself seen as a producer and get your product seen. Was that something you thought about then? Like, hey, this is an easier way or was it just I'm just going to do this because I saw this article and the momentum was there. Well, you know, there is no easy way. You know, there the, all of the ways take work and, you know, and then there is no set way. You know, my way was my way. I didn't right. think of it as an easier way. I thought of it as an entry point because I had read that article from from Deborah Martin Chase. And quite frankly, even beyond that, um, you know, there wasn't Google then and all of that stuff. Right. So, it's not like I could just Google what it meant to be a producer. Um, I really didn't even have in my mind what it was going to be like to be to, to do the actual job. So it definitely wasn't the you know uh, it definitely I didn't choose it because I thought it'd be a an easy entree because it hasn't been easy. Um, right. If 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 I could go back and I you know know now knew then what I know now, uh, which is always impossible, um, I probably would have just come out to L.A. after. Um, uh, college and just interned my way, you know, worked my way up that way. Mm. Um, because, you know, practicing for me has been my path. Practicing law um, mm. has been my path into entertainment. Um, and I don't regret any of it because it has made me a great business person. Vivica mm. Fox that um, this is showbiz, baby. And right. the more you talk about the biz, the more you get to show. Mm. And um, so, um, I do appreciate my law degree uh, so much for that part of it because I do understand the business. And so it's not like I'm just a creator. I actually know how to make money from what I create. That is dope. So take us into law school. Now, you said that you talked you talk to Mama Joe. All right, I read this article. I'm inspired. All right, so I want to do this. Mama Joe agrees. Mama J. Mama J, sorry. Mama J agrees to this. And you go to law school now. You pick which law school and tell us about that experience. Well, you know, once again, there was, you know, I didn't, I had no intentions of ever going to law school. And so that summer, kind of after my last straw, I called my mom and she wasn't Mama Jay then, even though Jay is her middle name. <laughs> but um, I called my mom and I told her that I was, you know, wanted to go to law school. And she was like, wait a minute, what happened to Broadway? What happened to, you know, all the other stuff that you said you wanted to do? I was like, well, um, I think this is the, this is what my calling is, right? I, this is what the spirit is, is leading me to. And so 
she asked me, she sent me some money to come home and I went back to campus um, at University of Illinois in Urbana and worked at Kinko's for the rest of the summer until school started. But she asked me if I wanted to take a prep class and I told her no. I said, I'm just gonna go take the LSAT and if I'm supposed to go to law school, I'll do well. If I'm not supposed to go to law school, we'll figure that out. And my mom is the go with the flow kind of mom when it comes to me um, because I do everything I'm supposed to do. Like I did everything she asked me to do. I got amazing grades. She didn't have to pay for college, you know, so she trusts me, you know, it wasn't, it, you know, I was one of those kids that she could trust. So she let me flow with it. And so I went and took the LSAT. I did very well. Um, and I didn't know um, that many law schools to, you know, I didn't know that what your procedures and not, but it just so happened my best friend um, and like my brother Antonius was in law school at Columbia um, mm. at the time. And so I applied and he, so he helped me uh, pick some schools. And then, so I applied to five schools, I believe. Mm. Um, to Columbia, George Washington, Northwestern, and then Loyola and Fordham as my safety schools. Mm. And um, my first uh, my first letter back was from Northwestern, and I was waitlisted. And I was mm. like, oh, "What's that mean? Oh, you just on the waiting list? Okay, I, I didn't get in outright, but I was on the waiting list, and I was like." Oh Lord, I'm not gonna get into law school. I guess I'm gonna have to do something else. And um, and then almost immediately, like just like clockwork, maybe two weeks later, I got off the wait list from GW. I mean, not from GW, from Northwestern. And then I got an acceptance letter from Columbia. And then oh, I got wow. an acceptance letter from GW, and then I got an acceptance letter from the rest, the other two, right? Oh, so nice. the natural choice would have been for me to go to Columbia because it was the top one that I got into. It's Ivy League school, my brother goes there. Um, but GW, I had picked it because I read in some, I, mean, I think it was still in U.S. News and World Report that they were up high up on intellectual property law, which is as close as you can get to entertainment law back then, right? It was like the number one school for IP law. And um, I went to visit Columbia and um, I went on a time where they weren't doing orientations and, and tours. And they basically told me, even though I was an admitted student, and even though they were about to get $40,000 a year from me, um, they were basically like, sorry, too bad. Um, I did sorry too bad thing. that they wouldn't give you a tour? Yeah. And so, wow. um, so thankfully, like I said, my brother was at, at school there. And so I sat in one of his classes and they were super intense and they were super serious. And I super felt like I, I was out of place. And um, because, you know, I'm a theater guy. I'm, you know, I'm jazz hands and dancing and, you know, this whole, I'm definitely the black, you know, male L uh, Woods from Legally Blonde. Like, That's funny smart enough to do it, but totally not serious enough, you know, where people were like, why are you going to law school? So anyway, mm -hmm. I, I made the same mistake and went to GW. I went on their spring break. And um, and so I'm like, okay, I did this again. And the <laughs> older man, uh, walking around, he's kind of hunched over and he says, son, can I help you? You look lost. I said, yes, sir. I am an admitted student and I, I thought I was coming to see the school. And because once again, there's no internet. You have to do a lot of due diligence, like you had to call and figure out. And so right. it's not like we would go to a website and find out when I could go. So mm -hmm. and anyway, um, he said, well, I, you, he said, well, you've picked the fine time to come. We're on spring break, but I'll show you around the school. And then an hour later, he showed me around the school, talked about the Socratic method in class and, you know, mm. why I love GW and 
Then at the end, he gave me his card and it was the dean. It was Dean Friedenthal. Had oh, wow. An hour out of his day to show me around the school um, just because I was an interested, admitted student. And I knew then that it was a place that I was going to thrive. And you should nice. always go in spaces and places where you will thrive, right? Not mm. just because somebody else went there, not just because it's the number one or whatever. You should go where you will give your absolute best. And that's mm. what happened. I went to GW and I excelled. I ended up becoming the president of the law school, but I was an odd. You know, I was one of the eyeballs. I carried a, a red plastic Rugrats lunchbox. Um, around first year and people were like, who is this kid? Like, you know what I mean? Like his six foot two self carrying a red plastic lunchbox. Part of it is because I, I, I couldn't afford to um, eat lunch on campus. So I had to bring wow. my lunch. So if I was gonna do it, I was gonna do a little statement. And I was, once again, a fish out of water. I was literally the black L word. Um, that is I, funny. I, I should write that and that should be a movie. Like, yeah. what happened? But yeah, I flourished. I flourished there. I did very well. I loved it. And I don't think I would have done the same in Columbia. Now, what was the most exciting part for you about law school? Because I've spoken to a lot of different attorneys and judges and things of that nature. And some say they appreciate it. Some say they couldn't stand it. They just wanted to get out and get into the real working force. How were you able to really just thrive there? What was it about it for you? Well, I love law school. I, 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 if the practice of law was as fun as I had, as much fun as I had in law school, I would have probably never become a producer, right? Interesting. Uh, and so I had a ball in law school. What I loved about GW was the practicum. They taught practicum. It was practical stuff. So there was, you know, theory and theoretical stuff in the books. But then our professors you know, actually practiced law, you know, and in, in some of the better law schools, a lot of them have, you know, they've been clerks for judges or Supreme right. Court or whatever. And then they go, they maybe practice for a year or so, and then they go into academia, right? So they, they're coming from a theoretical basis of the law. Whereas a lot of my professors, the great majority of my professors um, had actually practiced law. And so they would infuse the actual practice of the law into what we were learning. Um, 20 years ago when I was graduating from law school and you know, uh, you, so you, you, you find your job usually between your second and your third years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things that people would often say um, because UW is a top 20 school. And so we're up there with the Harvards and the Yales and we're being interviewed by the same firms for the most part. But what they would consistently say was that we were ready to pr start practicing day one. That nice. GW were ready to start practicing day one because of the practicum. But then it's just it was just a congenial environment. Like we weren't like out for each other's throat. You know, it wasn't like cutthroat trying to make law review, um, any of that. You know what I mean? Everybody helped everybody. Um, we shared notes. Um, and I just, you know, just built lap, you know, lifelong friendships there. And then we partied hard. Like there was kids on the quad on Thursdays. Like we literally had kegs out on the quad and we'd all, the whole school would come out and, and fellowship. And then we'd have, I think it was called Thirsty Thursdays. And we just, it was just a bunch of fun. We had fun and we learned and we learned how to actually go out and practice law. That is awesome. Now, did you intern while you were there with any place? Was that heavy for you? And like, tell us about that experience. 
So my first summer, I interned with the National Association of Social Workers. Um, oh, wow. you know, that's because Mama J um, is a social work administrator. She was the deputy director of DCFS in Illinois. So, mm. um, you know, she had extensive contacts. And that's something that I am consistently trying to work on for Black people because we don't have enough access, right? So... Um, law school is, is the same thing. It's like you, the people that get the best internships, it's not just about their jobs. It's about, especially that first year, it's about who your daddy knows, who your mama knows. Right. Dad don't know anybody <laughs> on your own. But thankfully, my mother knew uh, she'd just done a white paper with Hillary Clinton um, mm. adoption. And uh, NASW was the National Trade Organization for Social Workers. And so I worked with this woman, Carolyn Pelovi. You know, I need to look her up, but I, I, I hope you feel around. She was so amazing um, as my first um, foray into the law. And we wrote a white paper together on, I forgot what it was. It was a great summer. Then my second summer, it was based on grades and how we were doing. And I went and I interned, uh, I was a summer associate in a big firm in Miami. Um, oh, wow. I thought I was, I thought, oh, what, a, how sexy to go practice law in Miami. Yeah, not so much. Um, <laughs> and, wow. then I, and so I ended up um, turning down that offer to come work there for after law school. And so I was, oh. back, I was back on the job market um, third year and I secured an um, offer from this firm, Jackson and Campbell, which was a medium sized firm in DC. But once again, they weren't number one, but I felt like when I went there that I was gonna love it and I was gonna love going to work there. And mm. I started working there during my third year because I needed some money. And, okay. and I loved it. I loved I loved them. I'm still in touch with the president of the firm. He was my mentor. Oh, uh, nice. John, he uh, introduced me to the three martini lunch and you know, with law firms, you're going, especially as a young associate, you're going to be there at seven o'clock in the morning and not leave till 10 o'clock. I mean, wow. on, on most days. So to, to, to also be in a place where you actually like the people is, it just makes it so much easier. Um, hmm. So yeah, that, that was, that was what I did in law school. Those are my internships and associateships. So now, did law school prepare you to take the bar? And how many times did you take it? Um, so I'm very blessed. I have only, <laughs> I, I've taken three bars and I passed them all on the first try. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, so I, I took, at first I took the Maryland bar because okay. I was uh, going to be practicing at Jackson and Campbell. And so when you are in the DMV, that you can either take Maryland, Virginia, or DC. No one takes DC because you can wave into DC from Maryland and Virginia. So I took the Maryland bar um, and um, no law school does not uh, prepare you for the bar. <laughs> think um, to study for the bar, but if you think you can just go to law school and then graduate and go take the bar, you're going to fail. Um, mm. You have to literally devote your entire summer after graduating. It's kind of like an anticlimactic moment because you graduate, you've done this hard thing. For most people, you're at the end of your educational story. And right. then two days later, you're in bar review class. Um, you know, so it's like, it's like, well, damn, do I get to celebrate this at all? So, um, 
Yeah, I studied all. I studied my butt off uh, that first summer, um, uh, studying from the Maryland bar. And the funny story is, I just knew that I was about to fail because I got to one question on the exam, and it was an essay question. So part of the the, the trick of the bar is identifying which area of the law they're asking so that you can apply mm. them. Well, I read that dang on question three times and I was like, I have no idea which area of the law this is. So mm. let's roll the dice. And then and then I saw everyone just writing and I just started crying because it was like, it was wow. the combination of all the pressure. And I was like, I'm about to uh, throw away three years of expensive education by failing this. They're going to rescind my job and all this stuff. And then the, this, it was the black, young black woman, probably my age, 24, 25, sitting across from me. She looked at me and she gave me that black person look like, you better get your head up. <laughs> and I did, and I wrote it, and I passed. And it's so funny because I, you, they give you a, uh, in Maryland, they give you, if you pass at a certain level, they give you a distinction thing. And I got that. And so I was like, oh, Lord. Now, I, I then I moved firms um, after practicing for a year because I always wanted to live in New York. And I moved firms, and I went to a firm in New York. Um, I shouldn't, okay. you know. My firm in DC was wonderful. My firm in New York was a shit show. It was a wow. It was every monster story, horror story you would ever think about practicing the law was there. First of all, there were no people, and then so I'd gone from a mid-sized firm with about 400, 300, 400 attorneys to a firm of 30. Right? Wow. And so a boutique, but it was a prestigious boutique firm. It was the number one corporate labor and employment boutique in New York and at the time. And, you know, they were, it was everything you could, all the horror stories you've ever heard. So, um, you know, <laughs> partners that just were just mean to you, you know, partners that threw their shoes and stuff at people and, yeah, all of that. And so I had to take the New York bar and they gave me a week off. And then I had to take a week of vacation of my own. And that's, and then so like, I signed so up two for, weeks. I got two weeks for the bar. And then when and I signed up for a class um, for the evenings, but I would never get to go to the class because I would be working and they'd be, I'd be like, well, I got to go to bar. They're like, well, you got to work too. And so I'd, I'd, I'd miss, I missed, I'd missed most of the classes and I only got a week and then I had to take a week of vacation to study for the bar. So needless to say, I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I went into that New York bar. There's a multiple choice on the New York bar exam that is notorious. That is like the New York and California bars are the two hardest bars in the country, right? Right. That I was so dumb about it. Like, I didn't know. I was so just behind the curve and learning. I literally went any, meeny, miny, mo. No. I swear to God. I went because I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know any of this stuff. And I somehow passed. What? <laughs> I passed. I passed the New York bar. I sure did. So let um, me ask you this really quick. Were the questions similar to the Maryland questions? So there is a part of the bar that is the multi-state portion, which is the MBRE, right? That is, is the same for everybody. And then there's the state specific that is, you know, specific to whatever state, because like, you know, every state has different laws that apply to different things. One of the reasons right. why 
California is really difficult is because there's a lot of codified law, meaning a lot of their law is contained in codes that are specific and unique to California. Oh. Um, other states like Maryland and Illinois and those are based on common law, law, which is what you learn in law school. And New York is mixed between the two. And so that's what makes them so super difficult. Mm. And um, so the I did so I did well enough on the multi-state purge portion, which is similar to the bar that I had just taken two years before, what I learned in law school, what I was doing. My brain was tuned to that by then. So I did mm. well enough on that to bring up my New York score, which made me pass because I didn't do well on the New York score. Dope. So you were working. So you went there, got the job while you were on the job. You had to get your New York bar. You had to pass the New York bar. How long did they give you before they were like, either you got to get it done or you got to get up out of here? Oh, no, I took it the very next time that they were offering it. So let's say I started. I think I started in. No, I know when I started because it was right before September 11th. I started in August 2001. And the next bar was in February uh, 2002. And that's when I took it. Now, mind you, three weeks after moving to New York, September 11th happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, so September 11th happened. And then I have to take the bar. That first year in New York was a beast. That's why I'm like, I can, I can do anything. I can make it anywhere. <laughs> and then I was working at this firm that was considerably different in tone and in culture and just, and, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this, and I was the only black person in the whole firm. Not the, Oh, wow, not the only. Not the receptionist, not the janitor, not a secretary. That was literally the only black person in the whole firm. Wow. Not, not nothing. How long did you stay? I stayed three years. Yeah, three years. Now you said you took a third bar. Yes. It was the third bar. I picked California. I took a California bar. But oh, you that, did? Yeah, yeah. But that was easy uh, because I got to take a, 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 a practicing lawyer version of it because I've been practicing for over 10 years by the time I got here. Oh, so they have that. Yep. Explain Explain what Explain what that what that is. I'm not I'm not quite sure what the exact term of terminology of it is, but it's like a, a veteran or a practicing lawyer version of it. Um, if but somebody not, came and brought it to you and like you didn't know about it at first, so you went after it specifically. No, no, no. I when I first got to um Los when I first got to California, I joined joined a firm as a partner. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so oh. that's, that's what happened. Dope, dope. Okay. So now I know one of the one of the social media questions uh uh that came out was uh in in, in the career path. Well, sorry. What does a common career path look like in the inter- as an entertainment as an entertainment lawyer in in your opinion? Like as, as you're looking at it, is there a is there a a career path for it that you would tell someone to to go after? Or I know you had yours uh, when you were talking about Deborah Martin, but is there something that's twenty years in? Would you say that there's a path of a new attorney wanting to come in and get in entertainment? Would you tell them, okay, I, you should try and do what? So um, once again, entertainment is uh, whether you're an actor, a writer, a director, or a lawyer. Um, you know, there's it's not a there's no straight path. There's no two paths that are the same. You know, um, and there is no specific prescription to becoming an entertainment attorney. 
I think people um, misconstrue uh, what it really is. And so really what it is is contracts, contracts, negotiations, deals. Um, and so if, if you aspire to be an entertainment attorney, I really would pay attention in contracts class. I really would pay attention mm -hmm. in you know your deal-making classes and stuff like that. It's not a novel space of the law, right? You know what I mean? It's not like... Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not like trademark law. It's not like copyright law, which are, mm. you know, that can be a part of entertainment law. It's purely contracts, mergers, acquisitions, some labor if you go in-house or whatever. So I'll give you two different paths. So mm. my path, uh, you you know my path. I, I graduated from law school, went to work at firms. Um, you know, if you can do it, I suggest working at a law firm for a year or two um, at the very least, um, just because you know, I know there's some people that, you know, go and are solo practitioners straight from law school. I think mm -hmm. that you miss out on a lot of um, learning from older attorneys, even if it is in a chaotic environment like I had in New York, you're still learning from veterans and from people who've been doing it. And you learn, you can learn what to do or you can learn what not to do. Um, but it's helpful to be in an environment where you can learn from people that have been doing it. Right. So. Mm -hmm. So, but then after three years of being there, I started my own entertainment firm, um, which I didn't know quite know what that was either at the time. Um, but I started it with a, a, a more senior lawyer, James Grooms, who was actually at Jazz at Lincoln Center at the time. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I was full time in the firm and he was part time in the firm, but I needed that mature uh, lawyer to help me, you know, figure out, you know, the pathway, right? And so from then, you know, I, I continued to uh, have um, my own clients and, and stuff like that. And I didn't go in-house until well into my career. And I actually, I had retired from the bar and then came back to the bar and then went to Nickelodeon, which is where my um, brother Antonius Porsche was, who has mm. a much more traditional um pathway uh, into entertainment. So he started at a, you know, white shoe uh, law firm, um, Morrison and Forster. He went to Latham and Watkins, another light white shoe law firm. And I think he spent four or five years there and, you know, in, in a law firm. And then he went in-house to a small media company. It wasn't so small, it's called Broadway Video. Um, and uh, and they own like Saturday Night Live, you know, some of the stuff like that. So anyway, uh, he went from Broadway Video to Nickelodeon where, mm -hmm. where he goes up the ranks there. And he left Nickelodeon and went to uh, uh, Spotify, not, not Spotify, uh, Shazam. Um, oh. And he was the, he became the general counsel of Shazam, sold Shazam to Apple, left Shazam, and now he's the general counsel and SVP EVP at SoundCloud. So that's a traditional. That's if if there is a traditional pathway, that's the most traditional. Go to a he went to Columbia, went to Ivy League school, went to white shoe law firms, then moved in house, and then worked his way in house at different media companies. Um, How I'm sorry. Go ahead. I apologize. Go ahead. You take those two stories, and there are amalgams and 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 puzzles of those two, you know, different scenarios for many different people. Now, how, how important is litigation skills as an attorney, entertainment or not? Because obviously, there are issues that come up where you might actually have to sue someone, a breach of contract, and you have to go into the court. Does an entertainment attorney? Would you recommend them having? in court litigation skills also, let's say in the beginning path, or would you say just hire someone? What are your thoughts there? 
Well, you know, I, depending on your firm, but most of the big firms and even the, you know, the medium sized great firms make first year or not make first year, but have first years, uh, first and second years rotate through departments. And so I wrote, I did a rotation in litigation my first year, even though my concentration was in M&A, which is merger mm. and acquisitions. Um, and it was super helpful because um, mm. One solidified that I did not want to be a litigator. Um, <laughs> um, and two, it gave me, you know, it gave me a survey into what litigation was like, right? Mm -hmm. um, with that said, I literally just told a client just yesterday, um, you know, because there was there was a possibility there's some contention coming up with an, some another production company, and I just tell people point blank, I don't do that. It is it is not what I it's not my specialty. First of all, I don't have it. I don't have it even in my spirit to be a litigator. It's not who mm -hmm. I am person, you know, I don't like contention. I don't like fighting. I'm a negotiator. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'll give you these things that you're asking for. If you give me what I'm asking for now, I'm a, I'm a damn good negotiator too. I get what I, uh, you know, I get what I, the best that I can for my clients, but if we're mm -hmm. in a fight, I'm not a fighter. I'm not, uh, you don't want me to be your lawyer um, in a fight. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm still from the South side of Chicago and I'm real sensitive. So, you know, there, it might get to a point where I'm crying and cussing somebody out at the same time. You know, that, that's not a good look for a litigator. No. So, um, and I would say that most, uh, you know, traditional entertainment lawyers um, farm out litigation. Um, because litigation is a skill, it is a it is a particular um, training, and it's a particular personality type. You know, you want a pit bull on your side. You want someone who's going to get get in the ring and you know and 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 fight it up for you. Um, and most people that are doing traditional entertainment law, so whether they do it in private practice or in house, just don't have that skill set and and have never you know honed that skill set. Now, some companies, um, the big big companies, the big studios, you know, they have their own in house litigation departments that you know do the the initial work, but most of them still farm out the the heavy duty heavy lifting to litigation firms. Dope. So tell us. How important, now you mentioned earlier about negotiation skills. Now, obviously in any form of in litigation, there's gonna be settlements, negotiation, even dealing with your clients, other clients. How important do you, would you say going into negotiation and what do you do to, to make yourself better as a negotiator? Well, you know, actually my spiritual practices actually make me, I think, uh, a, a great negotiator because I don't go into it thinking, what can I get, you know, over on these other people, right? I go into from a, a sense, a, a feeling of, and I'm probably probably one of the few attorneys is going to say this, from a sense of love and abundance, right? That there is enough for my clients and there's enough to get what they need and want that's fair as and there's enough for whoever is on the other side to get what they need and want that is fair. Um, and so I don't go into it trying to milk um, a turnip dry, right? I go into it with from the mindset that this is what I believe is fair for my client. And this is what I want to get for my client because I think this is what is, you know, what they deserve and what they are worth. And then also I understand that the other side has to do the same for themselves, you know what I mean? And for, for their clients. And so 
I think if you go into it like that, then no one, you never come into it like that you're at odds. We're just trying to get to the best deal possible because what what good does it do anybody to be in a, because if you're writing, getting going into an, a, a deal with someone, you're going into a, a contract, a partnership, an agreement, a relationship. Does it do anybody any service um, where one of the people is getting screwed in the contract? That person's going to resent the contract the whole time and is not going to give you their best. But if everyone feels like we got to a fair understanding of what we could do and we are everyone feels fairly compensated they feel fairly you know accounted for and fairly heard then you, you walk into the relationship much more positive and much more ready to do your very very best so I don't approach your negotiations from a standpoint of uh, it's us against them. I approach it's us, all of us trying to figure out how we get this deal done and how we get it done in good form so that our clients, respective clients can go and create and do whatever they're supposed to do together. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Sorry about that. <laughs> I was listening to something that you had mentioned uh, a little while ago, and you were saying about uh, how, I don't know if this was your first way of getting into your production as an attorney, like crossing over, but you were talking about your experience with, uh, was it Dirty Laundry? Ski Trip. Uh, or ski Trip, correct. Ski Trip, where you came on as an actor, and then you were like, hey, you know, I'm an attorney. If you, you know what I'm saying, let me help you guys out, you know, and barter, give me a producer credit, I'll come in and do your legal skill. Take us there, because obviously that's a bold move, right? Um, to put that out there because you didn't know if they already had it. Give a, take us back to that experience and how you actually accomplished getting that gig. I love this story. I love sharing the story because it reminds me now, you know what, I'm almost 15 years later to still do the same thing and go for mine. Um, so what happened was, what had happened was um, one of my clients um, had already started this firm, Grooms and Williams. Um, one of my clients was a uh, was Richard E. Pelzer and Mega Management. Richard has now been my longtime uh, producing partner, business partner. We are still together. Um, but at the time he was my client um, and he said to me, he said, I know you used to act and I know you used to model and, and you know, I'd love to send you on some go-sees and you know i was like richard you know i'm serious i'm a, I'm a lawyer now like i'm a serious <laughs> what are you talking about and so he's like let's just make a deal if i send you out for three months and you don't book anything then you're just my lawyer if you do book something then you're my lawyer and my client and he sent me on i booked fashion week harlem fashion week and some another fashion week um thing and then um, a young guy from the Dave Chappelle directing team, Maurice Jamal, was doing this little movie called The Ski Trip. And I went and auditioned and um, and I got the role of Byron. And so during the rehearsals, you know, I'm waiting for my I'm waiting for my contract. I'm waiting for my paperwork. And, you know, and I don't think I told them at the time, you know, when we first when I first signed on to do the role that I was a lawyer because um, I kept those lives bifurcated because um, anyway, it, it was easier that way. Um, and that bifurcated means for the those that might not get that big term. Two separate. Separate, two separate, two separate tracks. They were separate. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, in any event, uh, so we, in rehearsals, I'm waiting for my paper. We like three weeks into rehearsals and I'm like, I ain't got no paperwork. 
And, and so I asked Maurice and uh, I forget a good woman's name. Oh my God, what's her name? Anyway, the, the, the producer at the time, um, you know, you know, are we gonna get some paperwork? And she was like, well, you know, and I was like, well, just so you know, I'm a, a, an entertainment attorney. And if you guys make me an associate producer, I'll do all the paperwork. I no. never did anything, but I saw an opportunity. I was like, this is an opportunity. And, 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 you know, and I asked for associate producer credit and they gave, they, you know, they handily gave it to me and mm -hmm. gladly gave it to me. And just along the way, Maurice and I just got closer and I ended up doing like uh, Crystal. Her name was Crystal uh, Mosley. She's a great girl. I, I hope she's still out there producing. Um, but um, anyway, but along the way, I, be, I started doing Crystal's job. And um, so Maurice was like, uh, why don't you be a producer on it instead of an associate producer? I was like, great. And then we heard that logo was being formed and I, I tracked down a contact and long story short, we were Logo's first premiere movie when they debuted, like Logo debuted on, let's say a Thursday, a ski mm -hmm. trip the network on Friday in 2005. And um, that's my first job as a producer. And I got to say I did it with MTV Networks. And so um, the rest is, uh, as they say, history. That is awesome. So let me ask you this question. Um, you being an entertainment attorney, you now being a producer, do you still hire an entertainment attorney on board or do you always take that role? Because you hear sometimes they say, you know, for attorney, sometimes, you know, a person that hires themselves as their own attorney sometimes has a fool for a client. You heard those, those kind of things. And I think that that goes more so for attorneys because sometimes they can be smarter than probably the situation. And sometimes it can kind of catch them up. Do you sometimes as a producer say, OK, I'm going to be the producer here and then hire an additional outside counsel so then that way I can stay in my role? What, how is that for you? How do you look at that personally? Well, so I, I agree with that sentiment about the fool for a client thing. Um, so let me, it's, it's, it's an evolution for me. So um, I'm at the point now where Tony Long of the Long Law Group is my attorney and I Got love you. it. Uh, I, um, and, but I, it's cause I can afford it now. Um, but, you know, through coming up through the ranks and producing and moving in, you know, and like with dirty laundry and just all that stuff, I did it myself because I could, and mm. I could afford to have an attorney. Um, but, you know, now that I am primarily a writer director, um, you know, it's just so much easier and better to have someone negotiating for you, even though you can do, I can do the negotiation myself, but it is, it is imperative. I think when you start climbing up the ranks to have a buffer between you and the person that's negotiating. So it's not you that's saying, no, we can't do that. It's your representative. And it makes, mm. and, and, and even though, in reality, you know your your representative is coming back and talking to you, you know, talking through the points and stuff, and you're saying yes or no. It's still not you saying no. We need more money. No, we can't do it that day or that kind of thing. And it just creates a very much easier and better uh, working relationship once you have to go be the creative. So along the way, I've done the great majority of my legal work. Um, for my productions. Um, and that was just out of necessity and cost savings. You know, it was a line item that I never had to add to a budget. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I, I was just telling Richard the other day, our, uh, our, pre, our, our 
we have a film coming out in October, but our previous film, Burden, um, you know, I was like, it was such a relief that Tony did all of that, you know, Tony right. did agreements, Tony did all of the, you know, and I didn't have to, because I'm also the writer, director, producer, fundraiser, you know, all of that stuff, you know, and right. so I didn't have to be the lawyer too, was a breath of fresh air. Um, and I'm trying to cut some of them jobs back. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, the next production we do, next film or whatever, I just want to be the creator. You know, I just want to be the creative. Um, but yes, yeah, so along the way, no, I, I, I did all of my own legal work. Um, mm -hmm. But now I'm at a point in my career where I can afford and I need, you know, somebody else to do it. And um, so Tony does it for me. So now you hear this all the time. People just pick the attorney that's a car, a car insurance attorney, a personal injury attorney. How important is it to actually get an entertainment attorney rather than just a regular attorney that handles personal injury or any other type of thing because they have attorney or Esquire on their name? You wouldn't go to the dentist to deliver your baby. You know, you and, right. and so you 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 wouldn't go to a pediatrician to um, tell you about your heart. Um, and so there, it's not it's no different with entertainment law. I think, you know, I, there's one of the, there's a little mug or something floating around the Internet. Don't let your Google search um Think that you you know and uh, think you can compete. Your Google search can't compete with my law degree, right? So mm -hmm. I think there is, and I think part of it's out of necessity because a lot of performers, creatives, whatever, as they're coming up, can't afford attorneys, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they try to do a lot of it themselves. But it, 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 if you can, it is a better investment at the front end than it is in the back end because mm -hmm. you have to come and clean up what went wrong. It's going to cost you way more money than paying me the two hours or an hour that it's going to take me to draft the contract the right, right way. And the mm -hmm. reason why you want me to draft it versus someone who practices insurance law is because, one, I know all the clauses to look for. I don't I don't have to read. I mean, I'm going to read it from beginning to end, but I know where to go first. You know what I mean? Right. I know. I know, I know what's boilerplate, what's standard, what's not. I also have a realm of um, reference. Um, and so I know what Sony is doing for deals like this. And I know what, mm -hmm. you know, ABC used to do because I did a deal with them, you know, those kinds of things. So you want someone who practices this because one, they'll know what to look for. And two, they know what's standard and what's not because so many times in entertainment, especially the big companies, they'll be like, well, this is standard. And right. standard, you know what I mean? Everything's negotiable. Even the standards right. are negotiable. But you also know what people will budge on and what they will not. But mm -hmm. you don't, it's like the pediatrician is not going to know to look for the right things in your heart, you know? Right. And they might ultimately get there because they are a doctor, but the amount of time it's going to take them to get there it's just, it's just, is is a waste of time, and and you know, for what it's worth, and this is probably, you know, this is part of the reason why it's really difficult for for people of color in this industry is a lot of entertainment is incestuous, and so you know, I get on phones with deals go easier for me because I've done deals with that person before, gotcha. or they know that I represent this person who they want to do a deal with, so they're not going to bullshit, you know, they're not going to BS me, right. Um, 
And and I'm a you know I'm down here on that regard. You know there are big 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 attorneys. You know the the Nina Shaw's and you know whatever. Like you know if Nina Shaw calls and picks up the phone, they're not messing with Nina Shaw. You know mm. um, they're not messing with Darrell Darrell uh, Miller. Um, you know and mm. so. I even tell my clients when they get to a certain state, like Patrick Ian Polk was one of my longtime clients. He's a dear, dear friend. And we just got to a point where he was just getting these big deals. And I was like, you need a different lawyer. You wow. know, you need you need someone who is who is firmly just a lawyer and not a lawyer and like me. Right. Someone like Amina Shaw or whatever, who can not only um, broker the deal, but also also get you deals. Right. So now entertainment, as you were starting off in the beginning, you were discussing about how there's IP entertainment lawyers. There's none that deals with, you know, maybe talent. There's all type of ranges within now social media and Internet. There's all type of ranges. Do you recommend someone go after the niche within the niche or any entertainment attorney should be versed on it all? So, yeah, well, that's a great that's actually a great question. Um, so once again, uh, let's say, you know, the, I, I use medical terms because they're easier to explain than it is. People get that right away from the law. So let's say a person is a pediatrician and that's entertainment attorney and they, they, they are the same. You know, they're going to leave. We're going to put them at the same level. So then like my friend Brandy is a pediatric dermatologist. Mm -hmm. And so she's a pediatrician first. But if your kid is having skin issues, you want to go to Brandy because she's a pediatric dermatologist. The same mm -hmm. is true for entertainment as for entertainment attorneys. There, um, there are are people that are specializing now in these brand partnerships and these, you know, influencer contracts. I'm doing a great deal of them now too. And so I'm getting better at them, but there are people that that's all they do. And, you know, they tend to be younger because, um, you know, that's really a new form, but you definitely right. have someone who has a specialty if you can, because they have, once again, a broader reference of what's going on in the zeitgeist and the universe of those kinds of contracts. With mm -hmm. copyright law, trademark law, or patent law, you definitely want a specialist. You don't mm -hmm. want me to do your trademark. You don't want me to try to do your patent. You know, you don't want me to, you know, I can do a little bit of the copyright stuff um, because I did study that, but you definitely want special, you know, um, uh, specialists in those regards. And then, um, if you're a T, you know, you're a person that's focused on TV, if you're a TV director, TV writer, or TV producer, you tend to, you should get an attorney that has a lot of clients in TV. Because mm. um, it really is, I mean, at, at some point, the contracts look the same, right? Right. Um, and your ability to negotiate is dependent upon your place in the industry, right? And your, your, your uh, weight in the industry. So, right. Someone has, and once again, this is the this is one of those barriers to access that happens for people of color because, you know, the the, the white attorneys, you know, are they have all the clients that are at the networks, and so they mm. get their calls answered better. They get, you know, they get more favorable terms. They they know what to ask for, um, 
And, and, and so, we, you know, we got to change that. And that is changing. I think there are more and more African-American and people, you know, POC attorneys breaking into that because there's more of us breaking into the, you know, into those, those storied halls. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're a TV person, back to my point, if you're a TV person, you want someone who does a lot of TV deals. Right. Totally understand. Because TV and film are two different worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. um, the, the type of rights you can sell, the type of abilities you can sell, the the way your brain thinks is different than a TV, you know, series deal. Right. Versus you might do with theatrical or a book or any of you those definitely, things. If okay. you're talking about publishing, you want if you're talking about publishing, you want someone who specializes in publishing because that's right. like the world, too. And, and quite frankly, it's not necessarily about the language of the contract. Um, most attorneys worth their weight can figure it out, but mm -hmm. it's really about just the his, their historical um, knowledge in the field and then their reference points and mm -hmm. then also just their access to the people in the industry. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anything that you put in your contracts that are like similar, like are always, this has to be in there. Like you need to put this in, this is always in each one. I recommend it to other people to have this in there. Is there a go-to thing that you always have? No, not really. Not really. I mean, there's some things that are just basic contract. You should have a term, you know, it should be, you know, but this is like basic contract law. Like this is what mm -hmm. comes a contract. There should be consideration, compensation. Um, but, you know, the, I can tell you a better, I can come at it a little different. The things that I look at first, okay, because um, one thing that people don't realize, so let's say I'm giving you $100,000, but I'm mm. giving you $100,000 for services for five years. That's not $100,000, you know, um, that's $20,000. Right. $20,000 a year. Right. Um, different, you know? So um, I, I look at the term, I look at the compensation, I look at the rights granted, you know? So what am I giving you? Am I giving you, you know, if I'm giving you all my rights, then that compensation is going to have to go up. And then if I'm right. giving you all my rights for 15 years, that compensation going to have to go up. You know, if I'm doing something for you for three months, then that's a different conversation with a little bit more, you know, flexible on that, 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 that fee number mm -hmm. I'm looking for the rights granted, the term, the compensation, and then whether or not I'm going to be able to own what I created. Um, right. Ownership, very big deal. Um, and unfortunately at the beginning of it, you really, your bargaining power is, you know, lower. Um, mm -hmm. And so I always tell people, you know, my job for first timers is to get you screwed less, you know, but you, there's going to be a level of screwdom um, <laughs> because, because the bargaining power is lower when you're just starting out and you're new. Um, mm. It's why in music, and that's another thing, if you, music and TV and film, they are light years apart. Like, you know, wow. I don't want to, I don't want a music lawyer representing me for a TV show. Um, mm. I don't want a TV lawyer representing me for my recording contract. I don't personally. There's some great attorneys that can do it all. I think that they're specialists. But um, hmm. my point. But um, but anyway, yeah. I tell the I tell newbies. I say, you know, just you're going to get screwed a little bit. My job is to 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 make it less painless. Completely. So, so a, a social media question, uh, which people always ask: How do you guys? 
you know, determine your pay rate? Um, and does that depend on the project or the client that you're actually working with or their success? Does it go up if you got a client that is, say, Whitney Houston or Janet Jackson or something like that versus a person off the street? I guess that's an obvious, but does it? No, it does, not for me. And I, I think not for uh, So let's say, you, so if you're at the Mariah Carey, Whitney, you know, level, you're already charging a lot of money, right? You know, you're, you're not, it's not like you, 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 you got the gig and you were charging a dollar, you know, an hour. Um, I have a set published rate um, of an hourly rate that I, that is my rate. Um, and then I do negotiate with people who are family and friends. And, you know, I give people the family and friends discount. Right, right. <laughs> if they are family or friends and or if I really believe in the project and I know that they don't have any money right now and I see a, a future for them and, you know, and I think that, you know, it'll be something that would be helpful. Um, but I also, so my rates are always set uh, ahead of time and I negotiate down um, for certain people, um, but I don't change it. I don't go up because somebody, you know, um, has more money. Um, but I do do other kinds of ways of, 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 of compensation. So some things, sometimes people don't want to do an hourly. I do, you know, a percentage of the budget um, for, you know, uh, if I'm doing the production attorney, if I'm a production attorney, attorney on a film. Um, some some clients like flat rates, right? You know what I mean? And so you say is, I'll negotiate this deal for you for this amount of money. And no matter how many hours I put in, you know, you know, this is what it's going to be. So you can budget for it, right? Um, and that works for me too, because um, there's sometimes I have, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm undercharged myself because I ended up going above and beyond what I thought was going to take. Right. You know, sometimes we're like, oh, we wrap this up in a day, you know. Um, oh. and so I feel like those balance themselves out in the universe. But um, I'm pretty fair. And so I don't, you know, I don't give the Oprah Winfrey price. I give, I have a set price. And I, if anything, I negotiate down um, depending on, the person's ability and my belief in them and or if they are a family and friends. The one thing I will say to young lawyers, get in the habit of charging your family and friends, even if you have, if you discount it, because I learned very quickly those pro bono do a friend a favor cases are going to be the pain in your ass. And wow. And you also have to train your family and friends that this is a service. You spent a lot of money and you spent a lot of time, you know, honing your skills and honing right. your craft. And it is not for free. And and quite frankly, people respect you more when they got to pay for it. Right. And they respect right. your time more. They don't call you with the crazy stuff that they could have figured out themselves. Because they, <laughs> they know that's on the clock. You know, when you when you pay in three fifty or four fifty or five fifty an hour, you don't call with stupid stuff. You know, you 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 know, you watching that time too. So um it's something that I always tell that's one of the pieces of advice is I always tell young lawyers breaking in the entertainment. Even if you are trying to cause I think that you also as a as a young entertainment aspiring entertainment lawyer, you should do some some things for a hundred dollars. You know right. what I mean? Because you might jack it up, you know, you right. might mess it up, but you right, should right. charge them something. Now, how do you break? How do you break that conversation down? Because sometimes it's not as easy to say no. I'm going to charge family or friends than it is somebody that you don't know. I mean, that takes another level of courage. I mean, how, how would you recommend doing that if somebody isn't 
conflict oriented to say, uh, no, you got to pay me for that. Because that's a bold move. Yeah, it is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. You can't go, you can't go to any place and be like, can give it to me for free. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think that people confuse. And so that's why I say start from the beginning, because mm-hmm. if you don't, if you get it straight with everybody from the beginning, the only person I do not charge is someone who pays me anyway, because right. she is my mama. You know, my mama's the only because she helped me get the possible. <laughs> That was who paid me already. So, um, right. but she was literally the only person I do not charge. And I feel like if you can't have that tough conversation, um, as after going through three years of law school and how many years of school, um, you might want to rethink being a lawyer because mm. you're gonna be having much harder conversations than that. Now is now okay. Now, where do you say the 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 the, the advice part comes in where it goes from okay I don't mind answering that to okay it's time for you to pay up to get that where that's does that a, part lie that's a good question so uh, I normalize that too that you know <laughs> so what I do is um if it's just a you know kind of a flippant you know what do you think about this? I do that to my doctor friends all the time. I got this thing. What you think? Can you look at it? Should I go to the doctor? Um, if it's something like that, then I answer the question if it's simple, right? Um, if it becomes more, so this is the this is my barometer. If I have to know the facts of what's going on in your life to answer the question, then you <laughs> That's and, funny. And so if it's a general, you call me like, hey, buddy, should I? You've done this. You're like, hey, buddy, should I do this or should I do that? And I'm like, we well, should probably do this. But I didn't have to know the facts of what's right. going on. You know what I mean? I could just say, you know, top line, you should probably follow this thing. I can do that. Right. in my. I do that for everybody. But if I have to know the facts about the case of what, what's going on in your life to give you an answer, that's me being a lawyer. And then I also give a 30 minute free consultation. Okay. I give a 30 minute free consultation and, you know, I will listen to, but we know, but then, but it also sets up the expectation that this is formal and that this is that I charge for this. And so anything beyond our 30 minute call is going, is is going to, we got to enter into some kind of retainer agreement. Right. So Mm -hmm. a little, the questions that general questions, I have no problem answering, you know, happy to do it. Just blessed that I can do it. Right. Right. Um, but if you started saying, well, he wants this to do this because I gave him this and then right. we did this, then that's me putting on my lawyer hat and like, no, that's you got to hire me. Right. Completely understand. So let's go into what is a production deal? So th- they all look different. Once again, there's no there's no set one. So but an mm-hmm. overall production deal tends to be um, a creator. Um, in some form, a writer, producer, per, you know, director, or all of the above. Let's say Shonda Rhimes is gets a deal with a studio, and mm-hmm. the deal has a a number attached to it that says this is how much we're committing to the things that you are creating. And so within that, there's some salaries, there's some you know just compensation to hold the deal there, right? Mm-hmm. And so. What the creator is saying is anything that I create will first be sent to this production company, you know, this company, this mm. studio or whatever. So Shonda Rhimes is Netflix. So going, her overall deal is that she creates content. 
specifically for Netflix, specifically with Netflix mandates. And mandates are what uh, studios and networks put out saying what they're looking for. Um, and, and But someone like Ashonda Rhimes is already in a separate consultation with the network brass. And they're saying from Shonda, these are the kind, she says what she's thinking about doing. And they're like, well, from you, we're looking for this kind of stuff. She goes and creates it. They, there probably is a right of first refusal, which means they get to refuse it first, right? Um, is that like a first look deal or is that the same? Look, well, a first look deal is a different kind of deal. So okay, we'll get to that. A, a first look deal is that I have a deal that I will show you my projects first, but I don't necessarily incubate the projects inside of uh, your studio, right? Um, Shonda Rhimes' overall deal, she's inside of Netflix, creating and incubating the project within Netflix, right? So probably with her deals, they if they refuse them, they probably have um, a moratorium on when she can go pitch that to someone else, or even if she can at all, while her overall deal is, is at Netflix. So um, some of the deals are like this, where you create something, they don't want it, it, gets, it just gets shelved until your deal is over. Um, some have looser deals, you know, those are the big deals. Those are the ones where they're like, we don't want you create nothing for nobody else. Um, right. the, of the world and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, and then there's some deals that say, well, you got to give it to us first. We have the right of first refusal saying that we have to refuse it first before you can take it other places. A first look deal tends to be, and I keep saying tends to be because they can look like whatever the two parties agree to, uh, tends mm -hmm. to be that I am Inhale Entertainment and I have a deal with Brookshire Productions. I'm saying that's the name of your production company. Right. And are you've paid me some amount of money to say that before I take it out, you know, on the road and pitch it to everybody else, I pitch it to you and that you get to say no before I can pitch it to somebody else. But I'm not necessarily under the in-house in at Brookshire Productions incubating all of my projects. You just, we just have a per first look deal that you get to see my projects first and refuse them first. Gotcha. Now, is that the same thing with like a talent deal where a talent like is, you know, a talent has a, a deal with the studio for, X amount of projects that if they come through, explain that if you can. So once again, talent deals depend on the talent and it depends on, you know, like you have someone like a Eva Longoria, right? She probably has multiple deals in place. She probably, but her, her deal is probably like an overall deal that encompasses her as a talent and then her as a producer and a creator. And now she's starting to, to direct. So that's mm -hmm. probably all inclusive of that. But a talent deal can mean two different things, two multiple of things. So it can mean that person solely as a talent and that we will incubate you as a talent here at Paramount, right? Uh, Viacom or whatever. And so we're trying to get you placed on as many spaces and places that are possible within the, the company. Or you can have a talent deal that includes you uh, bringing productions to it. And you as a producer, like Eva Longoria and De Devious Maids or mm -hmm. whatever, or Viola Davis and her production company. Um, so it really just depends on what your talent deal is covering, whether it's mm -hmm. covering you as just solely as talent or you as a talent who also is a creator. 
Hmm. So switching a little bit back to you as a as an attorney producer, has there ever been a time where there was a conflict with you being a lawyer and the producer's role? Meaning they're like, look, you're the lawyer and not the like, just know your role. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're not able to do creative. We don't need you for that. Has that ever been a, a situation you've dealt with or in, in, in any time or clients are heard about? What are your thoughts there? Um. So not with me because I produce what I create. So gotcha. um, I would have to have a conversation with myself. Nathan, you shouldn't be a lawyer. No, yes, I should. <laughs> so, um, you silly. Yeah. So I would be the one saying there was a conflict of interest. So, but no. But when I'm a lawyer, I'm representing myself as a producer and my my production company. So there's no one to tell me that, right? Um, but yeah, that's what we're talking about right now with the agencies and writers, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily the lawyers, but it is, you know, the agencies, they feel double dipping. So they, um, they have the talent, but then they package the, they package the, the project. And so they get a packaging fee, they get a talent fee, and they get all these different fees. And um, I do think that there are conflicts of interest that arise when you're the lawyer, the attorney, and a producer on the project. I do. Um, because as the lawyer for the, 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 the production, you are trying to get what's best for the production. And then as a producer, you know, there, and, you know, and I, I think that there, I'm, I'm, I'm I don't want to over overstep my talking there because I'm sure there are ways to do it. Um, mm -hmm. I, that you know you should have a lawyer that is the lawyer and a producer that is a producer and then sometimes lawyers do do deals with productions where they get a producer credit mm -hmm. um you know for an exchange for a lawyer a lower rate or whatever and then there's some deals where the lawyer is a straight on producer and produces it i i, I like to keep things clean you know mm -hmm. um, that is, there is no rhyme, rhyme or reason to that. Um, obviously, there are conflict of interest laws and there are ethical standards that we have to abide by, you know, from the bar. But, right. um, um, but for me, I just I like to keep it clean. Hmm. Okay. Now, startup companies. I know you did it a little bit, and we're going to be wrapping this up shortly. I know yeah. you. I know you did. A, a, you know, with uh, ski trip, that was a method of coming in saying, "Hey, I see this opening. I'll do this." Do you recommend attorneys, say, with a startup company and a production company, if let's say the company doesn't have money for that attorney to say, "Well, look, I want two percent of the business." Um, to come on and do it. And then if you say yes to that, what happens if that attorney leaves? Should that be a standard where you might have five attorneys that have 2% of the company and no longer even with the company anymore over the time frame? What are your thoughts as it relates to that? Well, you know, that's pretty standard. That is, that's how um, it's done in Silicon Valley for startup tech companies. That's how it's done, you know, um, because you don't have any money up front. Everything is speculative. Either the, the company could be a huge success or it could be a flop. And right. nine out of 10, it's a flop. Um, most, you know, unfortunately, most companies are not successful. And so the lawyer and everybody else is taking a great risk. And so they should get a premium for that risk, right? So that is, I think, totally appropriate. But in that agreement, in the retainer agreement, and I believe that th this is true, I know this is true in California and New York, you have to um, put, you know, express in whatever the agreement is, the representation agreement is, or whatever kind of agreement the lawyer has. 
You have to put limits on it. And the, um, the, uh, the, the percentages and equity should vest at certain different points, right? So you can't just enter this contract and then a week later be like, I'm not the lawyer anymore and expect to get 2% of the contract. Right. So, so, and you should do that for everybody involved in a startup. So no one should, maybe the founder, but no one should get vested interest from the beginning, you know, um, fully vested interest. So your your interest and in equity in the company should vest over time. And so if you were to pull out at a certain point, you've only accrued or acquired um, a certain amount of equity because it's only vested amount up to that point. So that should be accounted for in the agreement. Okay. And you mentioned earlier about two other successful lawyers that were in entertainment that you were like with, with uh, one of your buddies, you're like, I think it's time for you to go to that next level. How do you determine what makes a successful entertainment attorney? Is it years in? Is it clients based knowledge? What, what is, what would you say makes a successful entertainment attorney that you would say go to them because they will do it's a combination of a bunch of things. So it's a combination of, so I know that, I know there are attorneys who have been practicing 30 years and I still would never hire them. Um, you know, uh, well, I, I think that, like I said, it's a, you know, Hollywood and this, this entertainment business is a small town, you know, and there's an even smaller universe for, um, you know, attorneys and creators of color. So there's a, a bunch of things. There's reputation. And usually your reputation becomes, um, you know, well known by the clients that you have, you know. So, um, you know, Londell McMillan became famous because of his, you know, getting prints out of his deal and all of that. Um, and so I think it's reputation. I think it's the level of clients that you've had. And then also just your access. Um, and all of those things are inter, uh, interconnected, right? And so, you know, you know the guys who who the guys and the women who represent the uh, the men and women who represent the big people. Um, you know who have done the big deals. You know who has a reputation for being great. Who has a reputation for being a jerk. Um, you know who you know. And then it's so funny to me because I've come up against some of these you know big names and I've been nervous. You know because wow. they're, they're the big fish. You know they're the whales. And then I get to the actual work and I'm like. Oh, they ain't no better than me. Like <laughs> that whole section, you know. <laughs> and so, um, but it, you know, you're not getting it for you're getting it for their rep the, their um, reputation, um, mm -hmm. the, the the affiliation with their client list and roster, and and also just the kinds of deals that they've been able to do and and close. So. Hmm. Okay. Now I know just on a sidebar, I was listening to you and I know you did a project dealing with the homeless prevention, homeless aspect of things specifically all over in America, but you focus a lot on some of the issues related into California, because obviously coming here, you saw it more prevalent. Can you explain that a little bit more? I say that because, you know, I've been in, you know, I have a nonprofit called Hope for Tenants. My focus is homeless prevention in California. And I see it through the court system. I realize over the last 10 years, over 70,000 eviction cases happen a year. When you have that happening with 1% of, you know, 
litigants having attorneys, most of them lose when they usually have one person living with them or kids and animals that are not even accounted for. So when you have 70,000, let's say 60 times two or three for those that are not accounted for, that population can be huge. And I know you were talking in an interview that I heard you, you mention about how it used to be you know, maybe, you know, disease or, you know, mental illness or things of that nature. But now it's people that have two and three jobs that are, you know, just can't afford it or being evicted. Can you just go into a little bit of that um, aspect if you can? Sure. No problem. Um, so, yeah, I just finished um, uh, a feature link documentary called It Can Be Done, Ending Homelessness in America. We preview, uh, debuted the um the trailer for it on October 22nd. And um, it really is chronicling, I was hired by the Healthy Housing Foundation uh, to do this documentary. There was originally supposed to be a short documentary, but it just over time became this feature link documentary that is chronicling the homeless um, epidemic uh, in, in Los Angeles and really tracing the origins of it to where we are now. I'm really challenging um, the government and you know everyone else that this is something we can solve. This is one of those right. big problems that we actually can solve. Mm -hmm. um, and but because of bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff, you know, we just we just haven't. You know, the government has gotten billions of dollars to build housing for the homeless. They we start first started approving this um, in California in 2016, and mm -hmm. since 2016, they've just the city of Los Angeles just built their first unit, became available in January 2020. Unit or building? Just one building. I think it has 16 units. Wow. We've got like six or seven billion dollars. Right. Wow. So, um, but to your point, um, uh, uh, one of the uh, subjects in the, the film is Elena Pop, and she's the head of I the Eviction Defense Network. And she was saying the same thing. It was that there was a mass um, eviction when the rents went up. Um, I, I, I don't remember numbers well, but, you know, in the right. 2000s. And she was like 99% of them were not represented by attorneys. And right. the 1% that were represented did well in the court system. And so mm -hmm. um, it's just, once again, another aspect of our society where the imbalance and the gap between the haves and the have-nots is astounding. And mm -hmm. the face of homelessness has you know, just, just drastically changed. You know, what we came to know of, of, of what it means to be homeless is not true anymore. You know, when we were growing, when I was growing up, you know, what it meant to be homeless meant you either had some kind of mental disability, some addiction, or just, just in general, were down on your luck, right? Right. Um, now you have a, a high percentage, a very high percentage of people that are homeless here in Los Angeles County that have jobs, full-time jobs. Um, and at any given time, we have between 60 to 70,000 people that are without adequate shelter here in Los Angeles County. Wow. Um, and I don't even know what the numbers are since COVID. And now they're entering the, you know, the, the hotel program that they were do, using for homeless people. So I just imagine that it's just going to swell even more if we don't really get a hold of it and do something about it. And it's something we can do. As, as my movie proposes, it can be done. 
Mm. And when you say it can be done, what will be, let's say, one of the things that you believe can be done right now outside of obviously using the money that they have for the purpose, which is <laughs> obvious. But what else comes off the top of your head uh, from your research on that? Well, one of the things is that I use the Healthy Housing Foundation as a model of, of, of a way to do this economically. And one of the and what they do is they take their own money and they take existing abandoned buildings or existing properties that are underused, like old hotels, like the Madison Hotel down in um, downtown LA, and they rehab it and they spend about 80 to $90,000 per unit uh, to mm -hmm. rehab. It sounds like a lot of money, but in comparison, the government is spending two to $300,000 per unit to for just one unit of housing. And that's wow. what they spend on luxury units. You know, that's what they spend on condos that they're gonna, you know, charge a hundred million, I mean, not a hundred, a million dollars for, you know? Um, mm. And so there's a way to, we have the space, we have the buildings, we have the, you know, we have the resources to actually build housing for people and also build programs for people once they get into the housing. Because housing is, if you're without adequate shelter, it's really hard to do everything else. Right. If you have a chronic illness, it's hard to take your medication. If you, you know, are looking for a job, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do everything else that makes your life better if you don't right. have a lay your head. Um, right. And so first and foremost is rehabbing, repurposing existing abandoned or underused buildings, and then also put a moratorium on building luxury units. Um, mm. At any given point, luxury units in the city of Los Angeles have anywhere from 15 to 50% vacancy rate. Wow. So we don't need any more luxury units. We need more affordable housing. I completely understand that. And I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And then just before we leave that point, what was it about this project that made you put time into it? Because obviously you had to put yourself in difficult situations, uncomfortable circumstances. You had to see things that maybe you didn't know, learn things that you didn't know on that level. What made you want to do that? And how do you feel on the outside of going through it? Well, um, first of all, it was all of those things, you know, it was definitely an enlightening and heartbreaking at times, uh, many times um, experience for me, but it was also gratifying because that's what I intend to do on my creative side is, is to create entertainment that makes an impact, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that is also entertaining. Um, you know, all of all of my films so far that I've written and directed have some kind of social justice um, slant. Um, so it, it was definitely in my lane uh, when they, you know, asked me to do it. Um, but I didn't. Um, it, but it was also a, an education along the way about how we even got to homelessness and my whole perception of the homeless population and the homeless epidemic, it has changed. And I hope that when people see this film, um, it'll have some impact on, on changing other people's perceptions of it too. That's awesome. So switching really quick, and as I say, we're wrapping this up, talent-wise, can if a person doesn't have an agent and they're trying to be seen or they have a project they're trying to take in, can a lawyer do that for them also? Do you recommend it? What's your thoughts there? Well, yes. So, um, you know, when when companies say that they don't do unsolicited, um, you know, take unsolicited pitches, um, that is everybody but 
So the solicited means you are represented by an agent, a manager, or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's the same thing. The lawyer also has to have access to get you in uh, to a, a place, um, just like a manager or a, a, an agent. Um, but yes, it is considered. It is not considered unsolicited if you're represented by an attorney. Gotcha. And you may have answered this because I'm wrapping up. I want to kind of get these things done. Uh, uh, you may have answered this. What should someone looking for an attorney? Is there any top questions that you suggest them ask? If I'm looking for an attorney, I'm in the business, I'm a talent production company, whatever. What are some of the questions that I should ask that attorney, um, you think? Yeah, but just what is your first of all, I think the best way to find an attorney is like, you find your dentist is like you find, you know, your gardener or whatever by referral, um, you know, go to people that you trust. Um, and, you know, and if you don't know anyone, then, you know, social media is such a, a game changer these days in terms of access. Right. You can figure out and hunt down, you know, someone that can point you to somewhere. You know, I get mm-hmm. DMs all the time about people, you know, from people looking for representation and, I'm not taking on new clients. So I, you know, I refer them out if I feel like there's, there's somebody credible, you know, and, and you know, I refer them to friends. But mm-hmm. in the event, uh, I, I say go the referral basis first. But then when you start talking to the attorney, ask them, you know, what are their experiences with their t- particular kind of deal? Um, and you can you can understand you, you should have enough um, discernment to know when someone's bullshitting or not. Right. right. They and fumbling and like, oh yeah, da, 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 da. or you feel like you're being con, that's probably not the right lawyer for you. But if gotcha. they can talk intelligently about the the subject matter, about the 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 realm in which your contract or your deal is going in, then that, that's a that's a good way to, that's a good place to start. I think it's also totally okay to ask if you are totally um foreign to this is a new person, you don't know anybody, you it's not a referral, to ask them from for references from their other clients, um, you know, thoroughly research them online, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm at the point though, and, and, I, and, and I think it's a double-edged sword, right? I'm at the point where if you're coming to me and you're like, can I get some references? And you, I'm not, I don't, I don't really have the capacity for that, right? Right, you know? that's what I was thinking. Like, who's gonna do that, even yeah. if you ask, you know? Yeah, right, you know, well, that's what they do that are not, you know, opposed to that. But mm. once again, I, I, I would err on the side of finding a referral. Mm, completely understand. Now, what is your definition of success and are you living it now? I am. You know, I, I co-opt I co-opt my definition of success from Maya Angelou. Dr. Maya Angelou is, um, and I always get quotes wrong, but it is something like um, success is liking yourself, liking what you do, and liking how you do it. And mm. um I like myself. That 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 has been a journey, you know. To be honest, if I'm being clear and transparent, um, that has been a lifelong journey of really getting to uh, a, appreciation of Nathan Hale Williams as a human, right. right? And without the degrees and without the success, the outward success, right? Um, I love what I do. Um, I love creating. I love. I'm working in entertainment. I love. I love it. I, I, I would. Ha- I would have, and I have done it for free. So, so. Um, and 
I like the way that I move through the world. I like the way that I move through this business. I have established long lasting relationships. And that is because I come to come to things with integrity and I come right. with um, not trying to do anybody wrong. I'm, I'm trying right. to, I want everybody, to, I want everybody to mm -hmm. be happy. I want everybody to have their dream come true. Um, mm -hmm. If my dreams come true and everybody else around me and theirs aren't, then what good does that do me? That's not happening. Right. So yeah, that's success for me. Liking myself, which I do, liking what I do, which I love, and liking how I do it. And and that's success. And yes, I am. I'm there now. Definitely. What keeps you motivated? Um, because I see things all the time on your Instagram page, your Facebook page, quotes, and you're like, let's go. What is it that motivates you and keeps you energized to stick at this race? I believed I believe in my spirit and I've always believed this that I have a divine purpose. I feel in direct alignment with that purpose. I feel a direct alignment with God, the universe, um, guiding me through that purpose. And I think that when you lead a purpose-driven life, to not sound like a cliche, mm -hmm. then the the things that happen around you are less important and less impactful, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I do use those quotes and, and and that practice to keep me energized. But what keeps me motivated is that I was sent here on a mission. And um, right. and I think about that mission all the time. And I think about it when I wake up. Um, and what keeps me being able to do the mission is I've developed a, a spiritual practice. You know, I, I spend an entire hour um, reading, um, doing various readings and oh, nice. uh, and setting my intentions for the day. And so that by the time I get to the world, I'm giving you the best version of myself. And I'm not giving right. you that South side of Chicago crying and fighting version of me, which is still there. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, that my purpose keeps me motivated. I know that I was sent here to do big things, not just for myself, but for the world. I know that right. I have a magnanimous um, job. That's so, awesome. Now, two pieces of advice. Now, I would say one piece of advice that you received that you would give back to others in general, and then also that you would give to new attorneys or someone wanting to be an entertainment attorney, a piece of advice you received that you would give back. Never stop learning and reading. Never stop learning and reading. Never stop learning and reading. Um, because you will always augment the great things that you already have by getting more information, right? Um, that's the first one. And then, you know, the whole four agreements book, if you follow those things throughout your day and throughout your career, you will be great. And I'll go over. So this is the second piece of advice that has four, excuse me, four components. Mm -hmm. Be impeccable with your word. Um, mm. Uh, don't take things personally. Don't make assumptions. Always do your best. So those are the four mm -hmm. agreements. Impeccable with your word. Always do your best. Don't make assumptions. And what was the other one? <laughs> <laughs> always keep your word. Be impeccable with your word. Always do your best. Don't make assumptions. Don't take things personally. Don't take things personally. Don't if the don't take things personally thing will save your life. It will mm. save your life from a whole bunch of strife. Not to rhyme like Jesse Jackson, but 
don't take not taking things personally will literally save you from so much strife. Because I can't tell you how many times a day I go, don't take that personally. Don't take mm. that, that that not calling back personally. Don't take that no personally. Three, mm. because that's an important one too. Um, I know you asked for two. The, the third one is do not, I don't hear no anymore, right? Mm. So you have to normalize in, in this business. I don't care if you're a lawyer, a writer, a director, whatever. You have to normalize hearing no, right? Mm. And develop a personal strategy for hearing no, because you're going to hear no far more than you hear yes. Right. You don't take one yes. But the way you deal with no is 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 imperative to you getting to the yes, right? So I no longer hear no. I hear not the right time, not the right person, not the right opportunity. Mm, completely understand that. A lot of people hear no and they feel like that is a no to their dream, and they get crushed and they can't rebound from the no. Um, when really the no has nothing to do with you. Not taking that no personally um, is really the is what's going to keep you going. Gotcha. And what do you know for sure? Like when you look back at it all, when you take it all in your career and the, the things that you've been through, being from Chi-Town, being able to be out here in Los Angeles, three bars, multiple uh, law firms that you've worked with, career production. What do you know for sure that you would pass back down? I know for sure that I am loved and I am here for a reason. Dope. Dope. Well, I just want to tell you, Nathan, that I just thank you so much for coming on to the show and for taking this time out to talk through this filter. You know what I'm saying? I got to tell you, I wasn't sure because I know you're so heavily focused in in production and I have never really discussed heavily with the entertainment thing, the, the lawyering side. So I was really wondering, how are we going to be able to navigate, you know, this time to really feel that that niche of space. And I would like to tell you, thank you so much. I feel like I've learned you that I didn't know. And I've known you for 15 plus years, but I feel like I had so much I didn't know and uh, that the audience may didn't know and could grab from. And I thank you so much. How can someone find you if they're looking for you? Where can they find you? I'm going to put your website up, but where else can they, they find you if someone is, uh, looking for you and want to contact you or have a question, have a production, have a project, whatever. Well, um, I'm on social media, uh, probably far too much time on social media, but, um, uh, and Instagram is Nathan H. Williams. Uh, Twitter is Nathan H. Williams. My company is Inhale, E-N-T, I-N-H-A-L-E-N-T, uh, two E's. Uh, in that on Instagram. And uh, yeah, so you can, and my website, if you want to contact me, I'm not taking any new clients at this point, but um, I'm always happy to, you know, engage people and then also refer you, like I said, refer you to someone that I believe is is, is capable, but um, that's how you can reach me and follow me. That is and awesome. I just want to say thank you for thank having you. me. I haven't talked as much about the law and so and eons, um, but it's good. To, it's re, it's refreshing and encouraging to me that I still can talk about the law. Yes, you can. And um, and and it's a skill that it's a skill set that I will I will never leave. I will always maintain clients and you know legal work. Um, I'm maybe not always, but um, for the foreseeable future, I will always have clients. But it's wonderful to talk about it because I'm so grateful to the law and I'm so yeah. grateful for legal education and to be able to do it. 
And it's and it appears one one thing, even though you brought on other things, but when you put your mind on it, ever since that article, you went after it and you've kept it in your life. Here it is 20 years later, and it's still something that you rely on and that you use and that it's you and you didn't yep. give it up, you know, because you could have just said, like you said, production and I ain't even going to renew my law license, but wow. you are still practicing. And, and for that, you know, I, I definitely commend you on that one to get a goal to say, I'm going to do it, go after it. I mean, that's commendable. And I thank you for it, for being you. And whenever you do that uh, production on the Black L Woods, when you do it, I just want to help get a part of that producer credit. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. you know? But definitely you should do it because why not? I was just watching Legally Blonde the other day and I was just like, this was a good movie. So it definitely doesn't hurt to be able to have another uh, aspect on it. Um, and you have the story to tell. So thank you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you backstage really quick and put you back. I'm going to close out the show and then I'll chat with you in a second. Cool? Sounds good. Thank you. All right, All right everybody. You have it and you heard it here. Okay. That was just an amazing interview. And I just want to give a just complete shout outs and thank yous to uh, Nathan for coming on and taking the time to give you guys to give me. I mean, this was a treat for me. I've been wanting to get this information from him also, you know, and to, to sit down and for him to be so candid. I mean, you guys are going to be blessed. Remember, as I always say to you guys, where your mind and your heart goes, your body will follow. I mean, it's a true thing. You have to reach for your best self with both hands, not with one hand in the back and then one hand reaching for You got to reach with both hands and having the right knowledge. They say knowledge applied. Knowledge applied gets results, not just having the knowledge, but applying that knowledge gets results. And I love you guys. And until next time, this is Inside Law. I am your host, Brookshire, and we will see you next show. Thank you.